0: I have a question for you. It has to do with what you think about American society as a whole and how they view the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If, uh, if I asked you what you believe to be the percentage of Americans, United States citizens, who believe in the literal resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, what percentage would you suggest would be an accurate number? 25? 30? 12? 45? Do I hear 50? (laughs) Would you believe me if I told you 78%? Huh, now that's the expression I expected. Shock, right? Let's look at the graph on the screen. This comes from a Pew Research study done last year at Easter time. 273 million Americans believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I see the look on your face, and it tells me you're thinking there's a disconnect. Really? 78% of the population of the United States says they believe in the resurrection? And here's the disconnect it's an intellectual assessment in which individuals say, I believe in the historical fact that an actual event took place, that God raised Jesus from the dead. They're okay with that. But have they made him Lord? There's the disconnect. So you can believe that George Washington walked planet Earth. You can believe that the founding fathers sat down and wrote the historical documents of our country, because you can look at those documents, just like we can look at the Word of God. And individuals accept this as authoritative as the Word of God. And if it says, God raised Jesus from the dead, I intellectually buy into that. So we're surrounded with a group of individuals in our country today that are growing fairly rapidly who deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And they're, they're increasing fairly quickly, um, in, in theological circles, they've been known for many, many years as liberals. Uh, more recently, they've defined themselves as progressives. And that's a title they've given themselves. And so I'd like you to see a quote from a progressive theologian, a, a pastor actually, and his view of the resurrection of Jesus. So let me show you his quote on the screen. Um, it says this from Todd Freeman, pastor at College Hill Presbyterian Church. It says, progressive scholars. Do not believe in the literal resuscitation of the dead body of Jesus. We totally believe that something incredible, transformative happened to the disciples or the whole Jesus movement would have faded away. Something gave them courage. We just don't know what that was. I can tell Todd what that was. I know that you could as well if you believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we are told, according to what Paul wrote, that if our faith in Jesus' literal resurrection is not real, our faith is worthless. We may have stayed home this morning and just recovered from watching the Tiger game too late last night, okay? That might have been the purpose. But because our faith is real, according to what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, it would be worthless if it wasn't. Look with me on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. I'll make a statement that you might consider a little bit shocking, but what's new? I would put the disciples in the same category as Todd Freeman on Resurrection Sunday. The day that Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples did not believe it. It had no impact in their life. Let me show you on the screen Luke 24, 10, 11. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women who, with them, who told these things, meaning about the resurrection, to the apostles But these words seemed like pure nonsense to them, and they did not believe them. Got anybody like that in your life? They think the resurrection is absolute nonsense, or that you would declare Jesus as your Lord? Now, the women had witnessed this. They literally had seen Jesus, and so they were just busting out. They couldn't contain it. They had to tell the story. But John makes it very clear, as you're going to see in a minute that the disciples were not predisposed to believe that Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead. They could not get it through their head. If you've got your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn to John chapter 20. That's where we're going to be this morning, and we're going to be picking up at uh, verse 19. This Sunday and next Sunday are our last two Sundays in the book of John. Um, Today we're going to finish up chapter 20 and next week chapter 21, and then the book of John will be done. So John 20:19 it says this. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, "Peace be with you." Now this is the same day that Mary saw Jesus. The same this is Easter Sunday, and the disciples are behind locked doors and we're told why, for fear in verse 19. See, they're the disciples of someone who's just been executed for treason against Rome. And they're convinced that they're next. So the story begins to circulate around the city, and it makes its way outside the city limits. And the story that's been circulated around the city limits has been put out there by the Roman guards and the authorities that the disciples somehow overpowered the Roman guards at the tomb, rolled away the stone, broke into the tomb, took Jesus' body, unwrapped it from all the linens, put the linens back in place in a perfect bodily form and carried his body away. And that's the story that they began spreading around the city. The disciples stole the body. So I suspect because of the fact that their faces are now on wanted posters around the city, the disciples are feeling a greater degree of danger than they have on any previous occasion. Greater than when they were in the ship with Jesus and the storm at sea. Greater than when they were in the garden and Jesus is being arrested because darkness is gripping them. The the Greek verb that's used here for the word the doors are shut literally means bolted and locked. They're behind a heavy door that's been shut so no one can get in. They're in hiding and they expect at any minute, we have a warrant for your arrest. The police are going to be at the door. However, something far more astonishing than the arrival of the police is about to take place. Verse 19 says that Jesus came and stood in their midst, right in the center of the room. You talk about an unbelievable day, capital U, capital N, unbelievable. What they've heard about the resurrection of Jesus is now taking place right in their midst. The shut and locked doors really emphasize for us the miraculous nature of Jesus' appearance. Just as his body passed right through the clothing and right out of the tomb, he is now materialized simply by going through the walls or through the ceiling or through the floor and materialized in the room. And John leaves us with the impression that his arrival is extraordinary. Now, why they're so surprised, we're not quite sure. I'm I'm assuming we would be surprised in this exact same setting. But Jesus had told them he was going to do this. Look with me on the screen, John 14, 28. You remember this from way back when we were in John 14. You heard me say to you, this is Jesus speaking, I am going away and I am coming back to you. Verse 29, I have told you now before it happens so that when it happens you may believe. Now, we're told his very first words are, Shalom, peace. Why? Because they're scared spitless. They're terrified. They think that they're seeing a spirit, a ghost in the room. Let me take you to Luke. Luke's version of this is uh, chapter 24. You'll see it up on the screen. But they were startled and terrified, thinking they saw a spirit. Then he said to them, "'Why are you frightened, and why do doubts arise in your heart?' Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a spirit does not have flesh and bones like you see that I have. Then when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in front of them. Isn't that one of the funniest passages? (laughs) He's been resurrected from the dead. He materializes in the room. Shalom. Hey, I'm hungry. You have anything here? Now, if I'm there, I'm scanning the room looking for pizza. Well, they had gathered together to get together for supper. This is a gathering of believers. Individuals who were afraid. They're not really sure about these reports they hear. They get together, and then Jesus shows up. What kind of a body can pass through solid structure and yet, consume physical food. See, I think the reason that he ate the food and ate the fish in front of them is just to help them understand he's a real presence. There's no ghost floating around here. You can watch me chew this, and you won't see it go down through my chest and into my stomach. I'll eat it. I'll eat it in front of you, and I help. I think it helped them be convinced. Now, Paul said this was a great, great mystery in First Corinthians. We will, as believers in Jesus, one day inherit bodies like that. That's what we're told. In the twinkling of an eye, our bodies will be changed in a moment. We will have the same ability in eternity. But we don't understand it now. That's why it's called a miracle. Because if you could explain it, it wouldn't be a miracle, right? So it's a miracle. It's a mystery. But just as Jesus promised, their weeping turns to exuberant joy. They're just kind of bubbling over. Go with me to verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. The word rejoice in the Greek language is the word Cairo. It's used in Egypt. The city of Cairo means joy. Cairo, but look at the definition for it. To be cheerful, hail, high five. Oh, come on, you guys. I mean, it's in the definition there, all right? Now really, if you were in the room, would you not be cheering? Look at what's in front of us. They're they're exceedingly glad. And so Jesus takes this moment to then show his hands and his feet and his side. And they are forced in a moment to grasp the truth. The crucified Jesus, the sacrificed Jesus, is the risen Lord Jesus. And that's what they recognize. So in verse 21, he says to them, So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Shalom. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now that's Jesus giving instructions. So you want to pay very careful attention to that because if God's giving us instructions, you want to look closely at it. He's sending someone. Who's he sending? Well, he's not just sending the disciples. He's speaking to believers, all believers, as the Father has sent me into the world, I'm going to send you. So how did the Father send Christ the Son into the world? Well, first of all, he sent him into the world. And he sent him completely, entirely obedient to the Father, entirely dependent upon the Father, without limit, without measure, with the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You're going to have the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to go out into the world. You will be completely, hopefully, obedient to the Father, entirely dependent upon the Father for one purpose, in order to bear witness to the greatness of who Jesus is. Jesus constitutes the definitive model for us to look at and say, That's how he was sent. That's the way I'm supposed to go out also. Go with me to verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I want to be very clear about what's taking place here because the Bible is really clear that the Holy Spirit was not given until what's known as the day of Pentecost, meaning after Jesus' ascension. So how do we see this verse here when he says receive the Holy Spirit if the Spirit has not yet been given? Let me show you an example of that. Up on the screen, John seven thirty nine. it says this, but he, meaning Jesus, spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified, meaning he hasn't gone to God the Father. If you know your Bible, you know that Jesus said when he ascends to the Father in heaven, then the Father and Jesus would send the Holy Spirit back to us to empower us. Up until this point in time, the Holy Spirit came and went. It didn't stay with people. But at this point, we're told that the new era is just about to begin. So what's going on here with Jesus when we're told that he breathed on them? Now, Jesus said very specifically when he's ascending to the Father, I want you guys to remain in Jerusalem until the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit hasn't arrived yet. What's going on here? If you have your Bible and you don't mind writing in it, I would take that phrase, he breathed on them, and put a slash mark between the words breathed and on, because on them is not in the original Greek language, not in the original text. It was added later for English translations for the benefit of those of us who don't understand the meaning that was used here for the word breathed. So the word that's used there, the Greek language, is he exhaled upon them. So they added the word upon them so that English-speaking individuals could understand it. Why is that important? This is very, very symbolic of the Old Testament. And what you see God the Son doing is carrying out something that the Old Testament prophets had done for many years before him. And allow me to help you understand this because every time the Holy Spirit shows up in the Old Testament, it's always a symbol of the breath of God. So picture it this way God is in the garden, and He has just freshly created Adam. Adam is a physical being, which is a lifeless form on the ground. And we are told according to Genesis 2-7 that God bends over him and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, the Ruach Elohim, meaning the spirit of God. And man became a living being. So every time the breath of God is associated with God's activity in the Bible, it always brings new life into the environment. Now, you and I, when we become believers in Jesus, receive the Spirit immediately. But prior to this point in time, the Spirit had not yet arrived. Last night, my daughter, Mackenzie, had just got an evangelistic heart. She had the privilege of leading a friend of hers at college to faith in Jesus Christ. And at the moment of profession of believing in Jesus, that young man received the Holy Spirit according to the authority of the Bible, But prior to this time, the Holy Spirit didn't come upon people until Pentecost. So what we see here in this symbolic action is Jesus saying, Receive the Holy Spirit, meaning new life has come upon you. You believe in me. So now you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, although it isn't going to arrive until Pentecost. So this is a beginning of a whole new era, which has not ceased to this day. It's the awakening of the dead because they came to realize who Jesus is. Go with me to verse 23. And he said to them, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now if you think the part about the Holy Spirit was difficult, wait till you get this one, okay? I don't intend or mean to step on toes in any form or fashion, so just hear me out. If you have a, perhaps a Catholic background, this verse might be very familiar to you when you think of the authority of the Catholic Church. I want to give you um, my understanding of how I interpret this passage about the issue of authority and how authority is delegated from God the Father. Because I believe this passage is greatly misunderstood by many individuals, thinking that the authority to forgive sins belongs to man. But Scripture is very clear. The truth of Scripture is this God alone forgives sins. We don't do that. We don't forgive sins. God forgives sins. I can back that up for you with a very simple illustration. You remember when Jesus, uh, before the resurrection, before the crucifixion, was in a room with a large, large group of people. And there's individuals who were being taught by him, and it's a Sabbath day. And while he's speaking to this large crowd, somebody starts to take apart the roof. And the roof of the building is got a hole in it, and all of a sudden they start to let a guy down who's paralyzed on a mat right in front of Jesus, and they drop him. Um, They don't drop him, but they lower him, okay? They lower him, and they expect Jesus to heal him. Now, in that crowd, we're told according to the story that there's lots of Pharisees and Sadducees, the leaders of the Jews, in the room also, and they're wondering what's Jesus going to do because it's a Sabbath day. Is he going to heal this guy? Sabbath, you're not supposed to heal anybody. Jesus knows the wickedness of their heart. According to the story, we're told that Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, said a question to them, is it more difficult for me to say to this man, rise up and walk, or to say, my son, your sins are forgiven you? Well, they didn't respond to him because they'd been in enough arguments with Jesus. They knew better than that. So what does Jesus do? Jesus said, In order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority both on heaven and on earth, I say to you, Son, your sins are forgiven you, rise up and walk. He did both. Now, at that point, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because he took the authority of God upon himself by forgiving sins. God alone forgives sins, and that's what Jesus took upon himself. So, the truth of Scripture is God alone forgives sins. What Christ is saying here is a believer can declare to those who genuinely repent, those who genuinely put their faith in Christ, that their sins will be forgiven them by God. You have the authority to declare that. And so the opposite is true. For someone who does not accept Jesus and who rejects him, their sins remain. And so you can declare that as well. Now, you may know this, but when, uh, when teachers like myself prepare for lessons like this, we typically consult a lot of commentaries, individuals who lived many years before us and, and present day, who write down their observations about passages like this. What I did is I took an excerpt out of one of the commentaries to help you see the way this is structured about the commentary on this verse. So you see it up on the screen, and this is just what they're talking about in the way that it's rendered. Rendered. They are in a state of forgiveness. An example, they stand forgiven or they do not stand forgiven. But the Greek language is very clear. The passiveness of the tense here is that it's God who is doing the acting, not man. Now, this is not new information to the disciples. They've walked with Jesus for several years, so when he makes this statement to them, Their mind's going to go back to the time when they're walking with Jesus in this region called Caesarea Philippi, a region of the country, and Jesus begins to talk to them about the authority that he's going to pass on to them. Let me show you this up on the screen. It comes from Matthew 16. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What Jesus is communicating to not just the 12 but to all believers is that we operate under his authority and he is the one who declares, who is forgiven. We merely communicate that for him. So you can speak into someone's life because you have the keys of the kingdom. You have the truth of the gospel that saves men. You are free to say to them, God forgives you of that sin according to the authority of the Bible. So very succinctly, that which Scripture affirms, you can affirm. And that which Scripture denounces, you can authoritatively denounce. But let me encourage you when you do that, speak the truth in love. Scripture is very clear that when we speak to individuals, we speak the truth in love, not with vindictiveness. So here's the context, big picture. The context is this, the mission. The Father has sent me, I'm sending you also. The Spirit who has empowered me, the Spirit will come upon you, receive the Holy Spirit. And the focus of it is all evangelism. For the forgiveness of sins for any who need to be forgiven, you can communicate that to them. Dr. Barclay, Bill Barclay, really summed it up well. This is is how we should look at this passage. Here's his quote. The focus is not on giving individuals power to forgive sins, but rather on the church's duty to proclaim that forgiveness. There is one sacrament that I really like about the Catholic Church that they carry out in the midst of repentance. When an individual comes to a priest and, and they go through the procedure of what they call confession, you probably have seen it in the movies or if you grew up in the Catholic Church, this is very familiar to you. Someone comes to a priest and says, Father, forgive me for I've sinned. It's been blank amount of days since my last confession. What you see going on in that moment is that sense of a freeing, of confessing, God, I've done some things wrong. And it doesn't have to be to a priest. It doesn't have to be necessarily to another believer. It can be just to God yourself. You can confess to God where you have failed, but the result of it is very, very clear. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Your sins are no more. They are removed from you. And I can't tell you the numbers of times I've sat down with individuals in which I've talked to them about this issue of forgiveness. People who have never had faith in Jesus Christ before, they profess faith in Christ and I declare to them, I will tell you the truth according to the authority of scripture, God separated your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. He remembers your sins no more. Every single time those individuals begin weeping because of the sense of the guilt is gone. The power of God's forgiveness has come over them. Now at this point, John takes a dramatic transition and he begins to tell us about something that wasn't present. Go with me to verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And in your mind you'd say, uh-oh, dun-dun-dun, because it sets up a story that maybe is very familiar to people. What's going on here? Is, is he not in a social mood Well, perhaps, hope has been crushed. The one that he was willing to die for, Thomas was willing to die for Jesus. The one that he was willing to die for is dead and is gone. It's only been 48 hours. Now, I don't know how you think of Thomas when you look at him, but um, are you familiar with the cartoon Winnie the Pooh? I think of him as Eeyore. Oh, bother. Looks like it's going to rain. He's the one that's always seen the black cloud. He's the same one that said, well, if Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, let's go with him, we'll die too. He's just got that kind of glasses, completely empty attitude, okay? It's just who he is. Now, he's not convinced. As a matter of fact, he's completely unconvinced. Even though his friends keep telling him over and over and over again about what they've seen, he's going to demand the most concrete evidence possible. He knows how Jesus died in a very, very specific fashion. So that's going to become his measuring rod to determine whether or not he's actually going to believe this. Go with me to verse 25. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe Thomas is so certain that Jesus is never going to be seen again. He's laying all his cards on the table. And the verb that they it's used here saying is the verb said means that they said it over and 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 over again to him. We've seen the Lord and they won't shut up. They keep talking about it. But Thomas won't hear anything even though they're so enthusiastic. Many of us have known what it is to have this life transformation power of God come upon us. We've experienced the power of God's grace only to have someone pick up a bucket of cold water and throw it on you because they want to shut you down. It's all well and good for you if you want to believe that. But don't try and sell me that. I don't buy into that. And Thomas is so much like our present day society. His doubt is not any greater or any less, but he's at this point of a crisis of belief. He's got this report around him about what happened, but he doesn't know what to do with it. He needs to experience the presence of Jesus. So his remark earns him the nickname Doubting Thomas. However, if you're going to be fair, you're going to say all 10 of the other disciples get the same title because they were not convinced either until they actually saw Jesus. So here's what Thomas does. He decides to go one step further. The Greek interpretation is that he said, I'm going to take my hand, and if I can literally shove my hand into the hole and shove my hand into his side, then you got me. Then I'll believe. I'm looking for empirical evidence. Uh, When a skeptic says, I will not believe unless, he's already admitting he does believe. What he believes in is his standard of measurement. And if things measure up to my standard of measurement, my validation test, then I might buy in. It's very hard to yield the borders in that case. They, They don't want to give in because they've set up the parameters. Here's what I know about skeptics. Usually, the requirements that they set up, the parameters for their test, are really just a dodge from a much larger heart issue that's going on. And that's what you're going to see Jesus talk to Thomas about in just a moment. So in the meantime, God decides to let Thomas simmer for a while. You ever been boiling something on your stove and you put it on the back burner and turn the burner all the way down? Well, Thomas is on the back burner for eight days. Everybody around him's talking about Jesus, but eight days he's simmering on the stove. Go with me to verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Shalom. Peace be with you. Now you picture Thomas coming into church that night. The atrium's set up. There's coffee on the table. The snack cakes are out there. He walks over and grabs his cookie and coffee. He goes into the rest of the crowd. What's he doing there? He obviously doesn't believe. Why even come to the gathering? He isn't expecting Jesus to show up. And into that setting, God arrives. Hello, Thomas. Wouldn't you love to have been in that room? Now you can hear his gulp 2,000 years later because he put all the cards on the table. Now this is a great encouragement to us because Jesus has just taken a personal interest And that one individual, who's got all that sense of doubt surrounding him, personal interest, he's not there just talking to the crowd. Go with me to verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. There's a very subtle line going through there. Do you know what it is? Jesus heard Thomas' words from eight days ago. Nobody ran to tell Jesus what Thomas had just said. I doubt that anybody got on their knees and prayed, hey God, let me tell you what Thomas did tonight. Jesus knew, even though the room was locked and he was not present, exactly what Thomas's requirements were. So the next time you think you're not being seen, even though you're in a locked room, you remember this story. Parents, this is a great one to use on your kids. I used it all the time with my kids. God is watching you. So Thomas, throughout the challenge, never really expected God to accept it. And at this moment, he experiences what everyone will do someday. He is totally undone. Scripture says we're either going to confess Jesus as Lord here on planet Earth or before him in eternity, even whether we're being forced to our knees, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And that's what happens to Thomas. He's completely undone. Like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe to me, I am undone for my eyes have seen the Lord. And that's what Thomas is going through here. So notice how Jesus speaks to him though. He says, do not be unbelieving but believing. Jesus is going right to his point of crisis. See, his crisis is not doubt. His crisis is unbelief. He doesn't rebuke him for doubt. He didn't say, Thomas, don't be a doubter. He's saying you're an unbeliever. And there's a very clear distinction between the two. I don't know if you're aware of that, but doubt is intellectual. Doubt says, I want to believe, but there's so many obstacles. I need to work through this. I'm not sure I understand. I've got a lot of questions. But unbelief, unbelief is a moral problem. That's someone who simply says, I will not believe. As a matter of fact, Thomas was at the resurrection of Lazarus. He was present. Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. So he knew that God had resurrection power. But he still said, I will not believe. He's got a hard heart. As a matter of fact, the Greek language says he's using a double negative here. I absolutely, positively will not believe. So that's why Jesus is speaking to him. Thomas, you want your refutable evidence? It's right here before you. That which stands in front of you. And that which stands in front of him produces the greatest confession in the history of the church. My Lord and my God. Look at verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Do you know you can search the entire Bible and you'll find no record that Thomas ever accepted Jesus' invitation? to place his hands into his side. He saw him, and he confessed. What's really going on here? Thomas got it right. See, he does not merely profess Jesus is risen from the dead. He's professing to believe in what the resurrection has proved. Jesus is the Lord God. It's not him saying, oh, now I believe you've been resurrected. He immediately goes to the conclusion, which is, you are the Lord and the God. Go with me to verse 29 and look at Jesus' response. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. If you got your copy of the Bible and you don't mind writing in it, I would circle the word they and write next to it M E. Me. Who's the they? It's you. Jesus is looking forward across the centuries of time to you in 2012. Blessed are you who have not seen him and yet believe. Physical evidence is no longer available to us. We can't go look at the clothes inside the tomb. We can't talk to the witnesses. We've never seen the physical evidence of Jesus' resurrection. So this word blessed is really important. If Jesus says, you are blessed, I'd want to know what that blessing is. What is he talking about here? The Greek word that's used here is the word makaros, and makaros is not simply the word happy. It has far more meaning to it than that. It's supremely fortunate. Why? This is very easy to get to the point quickly if we render the word makaros as this. Congratulations, New Hope. See, that's what Jesus is saying. Congratulations to those who believe in me even though they haven't seen me. Why? Because information is one thing, but the outcome of the information is another thing. So the word makaros has a much bigger meaning than what we can associate in an English language, but it's saying not only congratulations, but you're getting everything that you had hoped for. Because you believe in me, your eternity is secure. Peter wrote about this. Look, let me show you up on the screen, 1 Peter 1 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's why Jesus is saying, Congratulations! You got it. Blessed are you. Who have not seen me and yet believe. Verse thirty is where it ends. Therefore many of the other many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John has made it really clear to us the disciples were not predisposed to believe. And only for them, after the most compelling evidence, would they believe. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit working among us now. But I will tell you, church, having become convinced of what they saw, they never ceased to proclaim it, even to the point of death. Do you know what happened to Thomas? This young guy, 19, 20 years of age, who stands in the room with the disciples and saying, I don't buy it. I will not believe it. This same young guy, not many years later, was taken by Rome as a captive and they gave him a choice. When Rome began executing Christians under the authority of Domitian and Nero, Thomas was one of those who was taken captive. Extra-biblical sources tell us that they stretched him out on a table and binding his hands and his feet, they gave him a choice. Thomas If you will recant of this one that you say is alive, we'll spare your life. But if not, you're going to experience the saw. So they put a man on either end of the saw to saw a person in half while they're alive. Thomas' response before they began doing that was, how could I deny the one whom I have seen with my own eyes? He was willing to die because he was that convinced of what he saw. Peter, the same thing. James, the same thing. We're told that James was torn asunder, meaning he was thrown to the lions. That's why John, who's in his 90s, is writing this by saying, if you believe this, you'll have life in his name. It's that real. The disciples have written down the things that they personally experienced. Now, Thomas was fortunate enough to see and know that Jesus was alive. But do you know that is not what saved him? What saved Thomas The same thing that saved the disciples. It was believing in the name and the presence of Jesus. It wasn't just seeing, because seeing isn't always believing. That's the disconnect. That's why people can say, yeah, 78% of Americans say he was resurrected. Well, seeing isn't always believing because it doesn't always take the person to the point where they're willing to say, my Lord and my God. Have you made him the Lord of your life? I don't just want to assume because you're in church that you believe that you're at the point where you've already believed this. So I'll just ask the question, have you ever come to the point where you believe, where you've made Jesus the Lord of your life? Now, so I'm going to pray for you about this morning, that, it, that this moment not escape you, that you deal with this moment, even here in this period of time. Let's pray together, church. Father, for those of us who are believers gathered together in this auditorium, we lift up prayer to you right now, asking that you would allow your Spirit to freely work among us. Not only to embolden us who are believers, but for those who have questions, God, who are trying to understand this issue of a relationship with you better. God, I ask that the power of your Spirit would come upon that individual. Cause them to use this moment and not let it escape. So that they would deal with the most important question ever asked. Who is Jesus to them? Father, we believe that you have been present in this time. And we just offer this up to you saying, God, would you use it and bless it. Use it to embolden us in our walk. Encourage us, Father, as we walk forward this week. That we would have these words that you caused John to write down for us. That they would be embedded in our mind. That we would walk this boldly also that we would be willing to go out on mission like Jesus has told us, that he's sending us out into the world. Father, we can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would be at work among us. It's in Jesus' mighty name we ask these things of you. Amen.